From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. This is our very first episode. And today's Crash Course, Elon Musk versus the Twitterverse. Elon Musk's Twitter takeover is catnip for a podcast like Crash Course. It involves so many collisions and disruptions that it's hard to pick even a small handful. But we're going to try. So first, the players. You know Twitter. It was Donald Trump's favorite medium. He tweeted 26,237 times during his presidency, often fact-free and truth-free. That is, until he got banned from Twitter in the wake of the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection. But Twitter was a pivotal force in debates about information, disinformation, the media, celebrity, politics, and all sorts of other issues even before Trump arrived. And then along came Elon Musk, Tesla, and SpaceX's innovative magician and chief loudmouth. He said he wanted to buy Twitter, then he said he didn't, then the courts made him reconsider, and then he bought it. His brief three-month tenure as Twitter's owner and new CEO has been chock full of calamity. Tragicomic mismanagement, mass layoffs, censorship, and personal histrionics. It's all been very, well, Trumpy, but in a Musk sort of way. To dive into all of this, I had to talk to Kurt Wagner, a Bloomberg News reporter who spent years covering social media, especially Twitter. He has boatloads of knowledge on how the platform handles what gets poured into our eyes and ears. And he's also working on a book about Twitter. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Well, we've got a lot to dig into here. At a really 35,000-foot level, Mm -hmm. talk to me about Musk's purchase and leadership of Twitter. You know, what have we learned about how he went about acquiring Twitter and what his end goals were? I mean, to summarize the last eight months into (laughs) just a few words is going to be a real challenge. But I would say the first that comes to mind is probably chaotic, right? I mean, this has been anything but smooth. This has been anything but standard or normal, starting all the way back from April, right, when he sort of showed up unexpectedly on Twitter's doorstep as the largest shareholder in the company, you know, he hadn't even filed the proper paperwork with the SEC when he crossed what should have been this 5% ownership threshold to kind of give them a heads up that, hey, I, I own a good chunk of the company, right? Even that was not normal. And so I think if you kind of go through this timeline, the theme that seems to run through it is that everything has been chaos from the takeover and the layoffs to 
the ability of him to try to get the financing together for this thing. It's just nothing's been smooth. And so, you know, it's been a really interesting story to cover. Did that surprise you? A little bit because I had not covered Elon Musk before this saga. And as someone who read about him, but from an outsider's perspective, you know, he was this guy, this genius who built Tesla and SpaceX, and he said things he wasn't supposed to say. And yes, he certainly seemed to run afoul of of regulators and things like that. But I also sort of thought, well, he must be really smart because how else would you get to this point where you're the richest man in the world, you own these great companies? And I'm not saying he's not very smart, but what I'm saying is, I guess I didn't appreciate just how chaotically or or sort of at times it feels like by the seat of his pants he's just running this thing on a whim it feels like and and i think i and probably a lot of people inside twitter thought that he might have more of a plan when he showed up than what it seems like has materialized so far well do you think he had a plan do you think he even had specific goals in mind or end goals in mind when he set his sights on twitter i think he had a few things that he cared about tremendously. The first is the bot situation that we heard about relentlessly over the summer. He tried to use this idea that Twitter is lying about its user base. It's just full of bots as a way to even get out of the deal. That didn't work. But, you know, as someone who has more than 100 million followers on Twitter, his experience on Twitter is probably not very fun, right? Every time he tweets, he's tweeting about things that are very attractive to people who run bots. Tesla, Tesla stock, crypto, all those things that that tend to probably flood his notifications with spam and, and other types of things. So I think that was number one. And number two, I do think he really felt this need that like Twitter was not serving those people who truly believed in free speech. And he was going to come in and he was going to be the like white knight for free speech. Uh, you could see this in a lot of the text messages he got leading up to his offer to buy the company where a lot of people saying like, hey, can you go fix this thing? Hey, can you buy this and finally restore free speech to the internet, right? And I think he truly kind of took uh, his offer for Twitter because of those two main goals. Now, those are very different than running the company day to day when you have to make money from advertising, when you have to launch new features, when you have to understand the user base and the nuances of free speech. And that's where I think he maybe was not nearly as prepared as he could have been with taking over. I think he had two big plans and then he kind of did not think about a lot of the little things that come with running the company day to day. But let's dig into that a little bit. How serious was he really about free speech? How much did that really ultimately matter to him? Or did that just become a nice kind of public sounding board that he could use to position himself as a free speech evangelist who was going to make Twitter a safe space for the masses? Well, I think it can be both, right? And I think before these text messages came out, and I'm I'm referring to this kind of a document dump during the lawsuit where pages and pages of Elon's personal texts were made public as part of the lawsuit. Before that, I I think I would have said, well, this kind of feels just like, uh, not phony, but at the very least, like it's a rallying cry for people, especially conservatives in the US who feel that they've been silenced. It's a way to distinguish himself from what Twitter has kind of been known for. You know, it's a way to build support around this idea that he wants to buy the company, but how much does he really care about it? But when you look at those text messages, 
I mean, he's exchanging notes with personal friends and, and colleagues, and he's talking about this a lot. And this was way back in April, right? Or March even. And so that to me makes me think that maybe this truly is something that bothered him as a user of Twitter, that bothered him as someone who's covered about quite regularly on Twitter, that not only was it a personal frustration of his, but then it also was helpful in sort of building support for his bid for the company and also just kind of setting himself apart from, again, what Twitter had historically been known for. Do you think there's a possibility that even if he was sincere about free speech issues, I mean, he has his own track record of not actually being open to free speech in his own enterprises at Tesla and elsewhere. But apart from that, that maybe he just saw this as an initial kind of joust or way to sort of put Twitter back on its heels, empower critics of the platform, but he never really intended to fully go through with all of it. And then suddenly he was on this slippery slope where the courts were saying, sorry, buddy, you've got billions and billions of dollars. Now make good on your promise. I think there's a very real scenario where he made a bid for Twitter without thinking the company would accept it, right? That in April, he said, I'm going to buy it for 54.20 a share, right? There's the 420 joke built in to the price. It makes it seem almost like he's just trolling the company with his offer alone. And they looked around, they saw what was sort of coming with the economy, they were already planning to downsize with layoffs and other things, and they thought, well, this is probably our best offer that we're going to have in a long time, and they took it. And I do think it's possible that he was caught off guard by that, right? He had a ton of money at the time, Tesla stock was doing incredibly well, he was maybe having fun. I don't know, right? But obviously it became real over the summer when he realized that, hey, I actually need to go through with this thing. I'm not sure how many people know whether it was a joke because all the bankers and everyone else showed up and did (laughs) the real work, right? But maybe in his mind, he never thought they'd say yes. Yeah, the bankers showed up and lent him $13 billion. They did, yeah. So maybe the joke's now on the bankers. Yeah. You know, at the time he made the offer, he was able to sort of have a lark with a $44 billion acquisition Mm -hmm. because he had hundreds of billions of dollars of a combination of both Tesla's publicly traded shares and the private valuation on SpaceX. And he's gotten in a bit of a squeeze lately on the financial side with Tesla, as we all know. But I think there's also an interesting thing here, which is that if there was ever someone who embodied disruption in the modern era and in the business landscape, there's maybe nobody who embodies it more than Elon Musk and in positive ways. He got the automotive industry to pay attention to the importance and the market value and the need for EVs. He put the U.S. back in commercial space applications with SpaceX, space rockets, two businesses that had been daunting to other people. He came in and by all accounts until recently managed them both pretty well. He had partnerships with the federal government that helped, but he was still a very innovative, disruptive entrepreneur. But maybe those skill sets don't transfer to media. Maybe the ability to run a rocket company and an EV company don't prepare you to be a good manager of a social media company. Well, I've heard from folks who used to work at Twitter that Twitter's problem is not an engineering problem. Twitter's problem is a human problem, right? Like you're dealing with culture, you're dealing with speech, 
you're dealing with, to your point, media and, and what people want to see versus what they don't want to see versus what's going to entice them to engage. I think Elon's background and his successes that he's had have been engineering problems for the most part. And I think he's approaching Twitter in very much the same way. The challenge, again, is, is that really what Twitter needs? Do they need an engineer or do they need someone who's maybe more attuned to kind of the social elements of what this product does and where it fits into society? And even though he's a very avid user of the product, he certainly should, I think, grasp that stuff. I'm not sure that that's the way he's approaching running it. That's where I'm wondering if there's a massive disconnect there. So one lesson here is, dear disruptor, know thyself. Yeah, I mean, one playbook might work for company X, but not company Y, right? And I think even from the people he brings in, he's bringing Tesla engineers into Twitter. He's surrounding himself by his advisors from Tesla and SpaceX, the people who are, again, doing these other problems. Those just might not be Twitter problems that require different fixes. Okay, I'm going to pause us for a second to take a quick ad break. We'll be back after this. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So did Twitter need Musk? Would it have ultimately been on a better or more productive course without him there? I think this is a tough question to answer, but Let's start from the logistics, right? Did Twitter need Musk in the sense, was the company going to go bankrupt in the way that Elon is now sort of suggesting Twitter might go bankrupt? And I think the answer is no, right? Twitter, as recently as Q1 of this year, was profitable. Q4 of last year was profitable. If I looked, you know, before we chatted to him, I think 11 of the past 14 quarters, Twitter has turned a profit. So from a business standpoint, It's not as if they were sitting there, I think Elon's described sort of as like a plane without an engine heading to Earth. I don't think that's really the financial situation the company was in. Now, could Twitter continue to sort of like grow at a very slow pace that disappointed investors? And would they have needed layoffs? Almost certainly. I think those are different things. And I think what Elon did bring was this spark, right? This level of excitement, certainly early on, like, okay, the most interesting, possibly smartest man in the world is here to save Twitter and kind of get it out of this product slog it had been in for a very long time. And so that's where I think, you know, maybe there was some optimism, but I don't think that Twitter was in need of a savior, at least from a financial perspective, that felt like something that they could have continued to do for the foreseeable future at the very least. Well, then what would be the best course for Twitter regardless of who's running it? Again, if you were to extract Elon Musk from this disruptive moment and say Twitter was in need of something, even if Musk didn't bring that to the table, you've identified product, which for our non-technological listeners, we could delve into that a little bit. They've had advertising issues in terms of just a steady flow of advertising revenue that they can monetize in unique ways and other issues. 
if you were to wave your own magic wand, and if I said, Kurt, you can be the CEO of Twitter, mm. what would you do? Well, I think Twitter has sort of always struggled with its own identity. And I think it sort of got a little bit better over the last couple of years, this acknowledgement of like Twitter is what's happening, right? I'm using their marketing slogan there. But I think one of the challenges is like, they had never diversified the revenue. You mentioned advertising, all of the revenue. I believe it's like 90% or something is from advertising. And that puts them in a very tight position when you go through a recession like we're going through or perhaps about to go through. It puts them in a tight situation when there's a war in Europe or when there's inflation and marketing budgets get cut. And so I do think one of the things Elon's trying to do, which is diversify Twitter's business and revenue stream, is actually a really smart idea. He wants to do it through subscriptions. I think that's possible. I think the problem is he's trying to do it too quickly, essentially. He's saying, hey, we're going to come in. Everyone's going to pay for Twitter, which no one has historically ever done. So why do we have any reason to believe that they're going to start doing it now? And he sort of like cut off Twitter's advertising business with his behavior at the same time. And unfortunately, what he needed to do, in my opinion, was say, Twitter advertising is incredibly important. How do we keep that going? And then slowly build up this other line of business so that we're not so dependent on advertising. And I feel like he tried to do it overnight, which didn't work for him. So I feel like, you know, from a business standpoint, I don't disagree necessarily with his way to fix or at least secure Twitter a little bit more. I just don't think that he handled it with any real nuance or knowledge of Twitter's advertising business to begin with. And I think that's a hard place to start. I mean, the advertisers want a certain kind of environment where they feel like they can get the attention of users in a somewhat safe space. Very safe space, yeah. And Musk has made Twitter seem anything but safe, I think, since he took over. As you noted, it's been extremely chaotic. At different moments, it's been flooded with upticks in hate speech and racism, not typically environments mainstream advertisers want to be in. Can he course correct on the advertising front? Can he do different things in terms of how he manages the environment there to convince advertisers to rethink it? Or is it sort of once burned, twice shy? No, I think the opportunity ahead of him is that he can still bring people back. And I think part of that is that advertisers go where attention is, right? And Twitter, for all of its faults, has a lot of attention. Now we could get very much in the weeds on like, why maybe they've struggled a little bit over the years, like the types of ads that they serve versus someone like a Facebook or Instagram and why Facebook maybe has a leg up. But I think advertisers are sitting here saying, hey, we're going to pause because we want to see what happens, right? We want to see, like, can he create this sort of safe environment that will bring this back? And if so, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people that are there that they're going to come back to. But up until now, I just don't feel that he has demonstrated a willingness to do that. He's kind of said that, you know, he says the right things when he talks to advertisers, but then he tweets things that most advertisers would absolutely die if their ad was next to some of Elon's tweets. And so it's like, he can't just say it, he actually has to, to do it or show it. And that's where I feel like people are disappointed. He has to model it. Yeah, yeah, and which he does not. He has to model adult behavior and sound judgment, which have not been sort of hallmarks so far of his stewardship. Yeah. Touching on one last thing on the revenue side, if he's serious about a subscription model, I think that involves thinking through why would anyone subscribe to a social media platform? I'm not saying that they shouldn't or wouldn't. I'm asking more about what is the glue mm -hmm. on any social platform that would make someone say, I'll pay 
$5 a month or $8 a month or $2 a month, whatever the number is, to subscribe to Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. I have a thought on that, but I don't want to dump my answer on you until you tell sure. me what yours is first. Well, obviously, it's a little tough, as you can imagine, to start charging for things that are already free or have been offered for free for a really long time just because people have come to expect that. But I can only really speak from my own experience. I'm a pretty diehard Twitter user. And the things that like, if they wanted to start charging me for direct messages, maybe as a general consumer, that's not a great idea. But what about as a business, right? If you're United Airlines, gosh, or you're Southwest Airlines, and all you want to use Twitter for is basically brand control, manage, hey, someone's tweeting a complaint, how do I get in touch with them? There is some charging for like APIs that Twitter does, but I don't really feel like they fully capitalize on this idea of like business messaging, which we've seen Facebook really start to lean into on Messenger and WhatsApp, for example. So like there are ways for them to charge without necessarily even just charging the main consumer. Like they could charge a lot of the bigger businesses that rely on Twitter to get their word out. And I feel like those are opportunities outside of ads that they haven't really addressed so much. From a general consumer, like DMs for me, I use DMs all the time. I'm I'm more cautious now than I was for sure because I don't know what's going to happen to my DMs with Elon in control. But like that's a feature that would be really hard for me to pass by. Like if they said, hey, we're going to start charging you five cents every time you DM someone or a dollar if you want to start a new conversation with someone. It'd be hard for me to say no to that just because, again, I rely on it so much for my work. But I do think I'm a bit of a unique case here as someone who's not only a journalist, but who's covering the company. I'm curious, though, from you, Tim, you said you had ideas. I feel like mine were more like geared towards businesses. Do you have more consumer-facing ideas you would pay for? Well, I mean, I think community, it's an elusive notion, but I think a lot of people come to social media for something that they don't get from legacy media, which is an ability to participate in a community, even if it's abstract. But Instagram, you're sharing your food pictures with people you know. Facebook, you're sharing family photos. And I think each social media platform has its own distinct identity. And I think that Twitter is a boutique social media platform that has outsized power relative to its user base because celebrities, politicians, journalists, and other influencers like the idea of engaging with the public and with one another around a certain set of relationships and issues. And I think that that's kind of a tender mix. These are all pretty thick-skinned people who are on there, for the most part. I'll say that you and I are thick-skinned. I think we've certainly seen journalists and other people freak out on Twitter. But it had a distinct community. And I think people will pay us a subscription to get a service, or I think they'll pay a subscription to be part of something. And I think one of the magical things about social media is you have this sense of being part of a much broader community than exists in your own home, your own block, your own state, sometimes even in your own country. And I don't know if Musk appreciates what the Twitter community's ethos is. And I don't think that's a conservative or a liberal, a left or a right. I think it's about, to a certain extent, information sharing and transparency that gets bogged down sometimes in mudslinging and petty juvenile behavior. But at its best, it is this distillation of a certain kind of information sharing that people might pay mm-hmm. for if that environment was kept intact. But he's sort of threatened 
the kind of boundaries of that environment. I think on bogus grounds. I think he has said that conservatives are squatted down there when, in fact, there's a very robust conservative yeah. presence on Twitter. And often, at least some studies have shown that liberals get silenced more than conservatives there. But putting that debate aside, there's an information sharing ethos about it that I think his stewardship threatens. You know, there was a, a moment not long ago when Twitter had this plan around creators, right? And this idea of, I think it was called super follows. So for example, Tim, maybe you have a handful of readers or listeners who would pay you to get sort of like exclusive thoughts from you, exclusive tweets from you, maybe like even podcasts or Twitter space or whatever, <laughs> right? And like, I think it's a little complicated for folks like us who work at, at a place like Bloomberg to maybe do that. But you can imagine the independent media creator who maybe could take advantage of that. And like Twitter sits in the middle of this relationship. And I guess some of the features launched, but it never really took off. I do think there's like some potential there. Like every person who creates media feels like they have a Twitter presence. Every journalist, certainly, most writers. And I do wonder if there's more that they could and should have done to sort of like facilitate that relationship and just never got around to doing. I know it was like something they thought about, but I don't know. It's really tough. Media is a fickle business, as you know, to begin with. So I feel like it's sort of tough to insert yourself even more so within that. Well, in that context, you know, what role do you see Twitter playing in shaping and disseminating information? And has that been permanently changed by Musk's stewardship? You know, is this the end of a certain kind of social media era or just a new chapter in, in its evolution? I think Twitter was always best at breaking news. So for me, I'm a big sports fan. If there's something going on in the world of sports and I'm wondering what's happening, I'm going to Twitter. That's where I search. I search that before I search Google. I search that before I search Facebook, certainly. For me, that is like where I go for a breaking news moment. And I think one of the things that could be challenging here there's two things. One, Elon's seeming to be doing away with a lot of Twitter's fact-checking stuff that they did. And it wasn't very robust to begin with. I'm not going to pretend like Twitter was this great fact-checking machine. But still, there was at least some level of trying to make sure that the things that were going viral were truthful. And it feels like Elon wants to just get rid and of it. And an effort to counter disinformation. Yeah, exactly. And especially around important things like elections, around COVID misinformation, things like that. And Elon, as far as I can tell, is getting rid of those things. And so now suddenly the information that you get from Twitter is less reliable. Therefore, it's maybe not the best place for me to go search when there's breaking news happening. Now, the second thing he's doing is he's starting to talk about the idea of tweaking the algorithm so that the stuff that shows up first comes from people who pay. And that is a huge change to how Twitter has worked, right? Because suddenly... One, you might not have to be truthful anymore for your stuff to get traction. And two, if you pay, you suddenly show up higher in, in the feed, right? It feels, to me, prime for manipulation. It feels prime for misinformation. And so because Twitter has always been this kind of news outlet for me, and now the reliability is about to go way down, I am not sure how it factors into my news consumption. And I imagine I'm not alone in that, right? So that's where I think Twitter could change dramatically is like, there's a lot of people who I think use it for what I use it for who might not be able to do so in the next couple months. And is anyone else picking up the baton? Is Musk going to make such a hash out of Twitter that inevitably other companies will come in and fill the gap? 
So there's a lot of talk about another social service called Mastodon. I'm not going to pretend to know a ton about it. From everything I've read and, and kind of observed, it's quite complicated. Like the user experience requires someone who's either very technical or at least willing to put in a lot of time to figure it out. And so while I think a lot of Twitter diehards are sort of moving that direction, I don't see this as like something that could be nearly as big as Twitter, just because, again, it's, it's too complicated for the mainstream users to use. What's really fascinating to me is like, I don't know, Tim, if you feel this way, I've heard nobody talk about Facebook as filling this Twitter void, which is crazy because one, Facebook exists already. Everyone has an account. Two, it already does a lot of what Twitter does. It doesn't do breaking news as well, but like in theory it could. And yet nobody is saying like, hey, I'm, I'm shutting down my Twitter. Come find me on Facebook, right? And which seems like on the surface, it should be a very logical place for people to go, but that's just not happening. And I think that's a totally different conversation we should probably have about Facebook at some point. But I guess my point is, is like, there's options out there, none of which feel like they could really replace Twitter right now. And perhaps not ever, I don't know. I mean, I think the people who create the most content on Twitter are going to have to decide and sort of move as a pack because that's what makes Twitter so valuable is that everyone who's breaking news is on there together. So, you know, if everyone moves the mast on or if everyone moves back to Facebook or something else, maybe that could work. But I'm a little skeptical right now because it feels like Twitter is such a unique place in the social media sphere. Well, and we can't dismiss platform design in that analysis because when you dive into Twitter, you're diving into a straight feed of information shared by lots of people that you see right away when you get on the platform. Facebook's a little bit different. Your first interaction with Facebook is your own feed yeah. and what you want to post. TikTok is an incredible feed of videos. Instagram's an incredible feed of photos. And Twitter is a feed of information. Right. And I think that that isn't easily replicated at the same time if the pool becomes muddied by disinformation or propaganda or hate speech or any number of other things, the pool becomes less inviting. And I sort of wonder at this stage, is Twitter specifically and social media more generally the problem or the solution to our global disinformation propaganda problem in your mind? Maybe it's both. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine getting the information at the speed in which we get it without Twitter, right? I mean, it's so incredibly fast that information gets to our fingertips. And I think there's a ton of value in that from like an emergency situation to just like understanding what's happening like right there. You know, I live in San Francisco. So sometimes it's like I'll literally see a, an incident happening on the street with a bunch of fire trucks or something, and I'll Google, I'll, or excuse me, I'll <laughs> I won't Google, I'll go to Twitter and I'll type in, you know, like the street coordinates and I'll see like, is someone tweeting about what's happening here? Because I'm curious what's going on. I think that's like a super valuable benefit that only Twitter can provide. Also, you know, protest movements globally. Totally, totally. You know, on the ground in, in areas in which people are forbidden to use other forms of communication or censorship prevails. Right. It's actually been a channel for liberation for lots of people. And partly because Twitter allows people to be anonymous, right? Like that's a big difference between Facebook and Twitter. Twitter, you can sign up for an account with any email and they don't ask for your real name or, or anything like that. And Facebook, they do. So, you know, Twitter as a result has sort of been used historically as a place for activists, people who maybe want their identity to be shielded, and Twitter provides that. Now, with the speed of 
Twitter comes all kinds of problems that I'm sure anyone who's followed the news can figure out, right? Misinformation probably top of that list or certainly close to it as being like stuff goes viral that is not true and it shapes opinions and it can lead to real harms offline. And so I'm not sure, like, I think that Twitter is is net bad for society, but I do think there are some real negatives that come with the speed in which we share and consume on Twitter. There are pros as well, but I do think overall, it's hard for me to imagine the news environment existing the way that it does today without Twitter. I want to ask you more about that, but let's take a quick break first. We'll be right back. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Do you think at his core, Musk himself really cares about policing for disinformation? You know, you mentioned earlier COVID-19 hoaxes have been rampant on yeah. Twitter. It had an impact on vaccine uptake, you know, in the general population, misinformation that was shared on Twitter. Musk himself has propagated sensationalist and misleading information about COVID-19 vaccines. Is he built to be someone who aptly and aggressively polices for disinformation? Uh, no, I don't think he will be. I don't think he is. He has already revoked Twitter's misinformation policy around COVID-19 misinformation. I was told that one of the, the first things he did when he took over was sort of instruct the team that was in charge of Twitter's misinformation policies to review them and kind of make sure like, hey, do these even make sense? Should we continue to have these? So I don't think that he sees misinformation as sort of like a key pillar for him of Twitter. I think if anything, he thinks the company has gone much too far in trying to police that type of stuff. And it's restricted speech that he feels people should see. So I don't see misinformation fighting as a key priority for him as a Twitter's owner. So is that a death sentence for Twitter? No, I don't, I don't think it's a death sentence, but I think it makes Twitter less valuable at the thing that it does best, which is what we we're talking about, the access to reliable information very quickly. And so is it a death sentence? I would say no, because I think there's a lot of people who don't pay close attention to the news they get as is and, and probably are not going to be turned off by that. But is it going to lower Twitter's value to people who do care about that stuff, myself included? I think the answer is for sure. I don't know where that ultimately like leads Twitter long term, but I don't think it's a good thing, in my opinion, to weaken sort of the thing you do best at least for me, that feels like a bad strategy. And so I'm interested to see like what the ramifications are. But I don't know how many people are in my, my shoes. Like I don't know how many people are going to change their Twitter behavior as a result of this. You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that Musk is an engineer. Yeah. A brilliant engineer, an innovator, and a disruptor. But that doesn't necessarily make him a media manager. 
And I thought about that a lot beyond just Twitter itself, mm-hmm. that in this amazing era of technological innovation that we're in and the social media side of that equation, a lot of the social media platforms continue to insist that they're technology companies. They're not publishers. Sure. And I've always been a little bit suspicious of that argument. I think there's legal and financial reasons they say that. It's cheaper not to have to police your own content. You're less exposed to liability lawsuits if you don't have to police what you publish. At the same time, they have become media platforms akin to newspapers or television stations or radio or any of the legacy media. And it feels to me like, you know, this schizophrenia inside social media companies is intentional. And that until the the managers and the owners of those companies themselves resolve this conflict, they're actually not going to be faithful stewards Mm -hmm. of high quality information. But I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, this is such a challenging question because we've been discussing it for years, right, without any clear answer. And I think the problem is the reality is they're a hybrid media company. Like, they certainly make editorial decisions, right? They choose, in some cases, what misinformation is or isn't, and they choose what shows up high in the algorithm and which stuff doesn't. Like, these are all decisions that ultimately are the same types of things that a media company makes. They make money from advertising, right? Almost all media companies make money in the exact same way, right? By monetizing our attention. And subscriptions. And subscriptions. But I do think where it sort of becomes a little thorny is like the vast majority of the content that is shared on these platforms is not something that they are paying for. It's not something that they are choosing necessarily. They're not assigning someone to post something about a particular topic. And so like, I think you're right. There's legal reasons for these companies to not be publishers, largely to do with responsibility when someone posts something that might be illegal. But at the same time, like, it's clear that they make editorial decisions. And and I think that's why we're still talking about this years later. There isn't a clear answer. And that's why Congress has struggled to come up with laws or regulations around what they can and can't do is because it's something that's new that no one had really thought about when a lot of these laws were written decades ago. Though they're clearly gatekeepers, however we define that. And and there's been moments in which they've been held to account for being more thoughtful and responsible gatekeepers. I think about you know, gun sales on Facebook, for example. Yeah. Facebook was asked to take a closer look at the social fallout from the fact that guns were being sold willy-nilly on the platform, and they cracked down on that. So why is it any different when it comes to disinformation that has a negative impact? Isn't there a gatekeeping role for these companies that's commensurate with that? I think that the problem is, I mean, the gun things you're talking about, even that is controversial, right? Like some people, I don't think, see any problem with there being weapons advertised on these social platforms. And so the issue is that not everyone agrees on what even misinformation or disinformation is, right? And so there are people who say, hey, you're just simply taking down speech. Other people who say, hey, you're harming society because you're choosing to leave this up. I mean, these are all discussions that, again, we've been having for years, and the reason nothing gets done about them is because they're very complicated. I think the issue of having any type of regulation around misinformation is like, then you have the government trying to decide what is true or false or which categories the companies should be deciding what's true or false. 
which I think is a really, again, thorny situation to be in. I think running one of these companies sounds like a miserable job for these very reasons. (laughs) And I think this is one of the things to go sort of full circle back to Elon and his intentions. I just don't think he thought about this. I think he showed up and he said sort of famously, hey, we're just going to do whatever the laws in, in all the countries we're operating are. And he's quickly realizing like, that's not a super easy thing to do either, as we saw with like the coordinates of his airplane. It's like legally, people can get that information. That is not illegal information to have. And yet he says, you can't put that on Twitter. Well, suddenly he's already doing things that are not illegal, but he's he's making Twitter rules around. So my point is, is that this is a really hard problem. Well, while, by the way, he's also tweeting photos from the World Cup in Qatar. Yeah, exactly. Telling everyone I'm in the here, world that he's right? sitting there in the stands. And they can come find him there if they need to. This is policy by a whim, you know, and and that's where I think he just totally underappreciated how complicated it is to do this for, you know, 250 million people around the world at one time. He's tweeted pictures of his nightstand, too, next to his bed with, I think, multiple Diet Cokes and his gun. That's right. And I sort of wonder when he puts his head down on his pillow at night, do you think that he regrets his journey at Twitter or is it too soon to say? I think it's too soon to say. It's been two months, right? It's, he's, he's only owned the company. It feels like he's owned the company for two years, <laughs> yes. but he's owned the company for two months. And so, you know, I think it depends on ultimately what his legacy will be at Twitter. I think so far, I think if the story ended today, it would be a huge black eye on Elon Musk's legacy that he did this entire thing and that it's gone the way that it's gone. Now, we might look up a year from now and And gosh, maybe Twitter will indeed have built this big subscription business and suddenly be twice as profitable as it was. And maybe we're all still there tweeting because we can't help ourselves. And voila, he's like, turn this thing into a bigger business than we ever expected. I'm not super convinced that that's actually going to happen. But I'm also a little reluctant to kind of write off this entire thing two months in because I just don't know at the pace at which things are changing. I mean, gosh, there's just a whole lot that can still happen in 2023. Maybe by the time your book comes out, some of this stuff will have been resolved and we can talk about this again then. I would love that. I'm trying to figure out at what date do I say, okay, everything that happens on this date forward is somebody else's book or somebody else's problem because the the story just evolves every single day. At some point, I'm going to have to stop, but we haven't gotten to that just yet. Can I ask you one more question? Yeah, of course. What lessons have you learned from Elon Musk's collision with the Twitterverse? Hmm. I think that I've just grown a greater appreciation for what can happen when someone is very rich and powerful in terms of sort of like forcing things that you wouldn't think would be possible and not all good things, right? Like we've seen, for example, he's just sort of ignoring regulatory requirements. He signed an agreement to buy this company and then just simply said, I'm not going to buy it. Like that is not something that could normally happen, but he is Elon Musk, he has infinite resources. He seems to have no regard for kind of general rules that most of the rest of us play by. And so I think for me, it's just sort of like opened my eyes to the fact that we think something is supposed to work a certain way, and yet that's not set in stone or very rigid necessarily, especially when you are a very rich and powerful person, which he is. And so maybe I was just too naive previously to assume like, okay, a binding contract means everyone will actually do what they say they're going to do. But he's just sort of like proved that almost nothing 
that's even said or agreed to is set in stone until he decides that it is. And if you can afford enough lawyers to yeah. keep the SEC at bay, he's thumbed his nose at the SEC, to keep competitors at bay, to keep critics at bay, he is empowered in a way that average people aren't simply because of his wealth. That's right. And of course, his accomplishments, but his wealth is the sort of tip of the spear in this, isn't it? I think so. And again, I've covered very wealthy people. I've covered Facebook a long time and Mark Zuckerberg. But, you know, rarely, I guess, did I ever come face to face with someone just simply using their sheer wealth to kind of do whatever they want, regardless of rules. And I feel like that's what we've seen from Elon in this situation time and time again. And so it's just kind of opened my eyes a little bit more to that reality in the business world. And that rules are sometimes for other people if you're in a position to ignore them yourself. If you have money. Yeah, if you have the money. Well, man, that went by really quickly, Kurt. Thanks for joining us. That was a real treat today. And I would like to tell our audience that you can follow Kurt Wagner on Twitter at KurtWagner8. I look forward to our next session, Kurt. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that the skills you acquire by running a disruptive automobile company and a spiffy rocket company may not make you the best person to run a complicated and high-profile social media platform. And inspired by Kurt's insights, I also think we have a rules problem in America. It seems like some rules are fit for some people and some aren't fit for others, and power and money is sometimes the dividing line. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or at me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Katie Boyce, Jed Sandberg, Jeff Grocott, and Mike Nitza. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks this week to Carly Snyder and Christine Vanden Bylart here at Bloomberg, as well as Allison Cantor Graber and the rest of the iHeart team that helped get this show off the ground. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.